0: People are not stepping into the conversations that they need to have. And at the root of it is they're worried about the outcome. Well, I'm worried that if I do this, I'm gonna hurt their feelings. So I'm worried that if I do this, there's gonna be some blowback against me. But you really do wanna be in a position where you know how to bounce back when things go wrong. You know how to bring out the best in everybody around you. But that also means you're bringing your best. People don't come to me and go, oh, gee, Michelle, I'm finding my work hard. They come to me and go, my boss is a, you know, they'll swear or they'll go, I just can't work with him I can, or her. I can't relate to them or they're a bully. They, you know, don't give me clear instructions. It's the relationships at work that people struggle with, less so the actual work. So if you can work on the relationships, if you can find ways to make those relationships more constructive, more healthy, then you're going to create an environment
1: where people thrive. Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders, game-changing influencers, and next-level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your host, CEO and founder of Energy to Perform, international speaker and leadership performance coach, Craig Johns.
2: On this episode of the active CEO podcast, I speak with a workplace expert global keynote speaker on leadership and best selling author of bad boss step up career leap and get career fit. Her education includes a bachelor of business communications, PR and government from Queensland university of technology, diploma of management from Swinburne university of technology, and a Master's in International Trade and Diplomacy International Business from Monash University. Our guest's esteemed career includes Press Secretary and Public Policy Advisor for Federal Member of Parliament, Communications Manager at Mount Isa Mines, various Senior Management roles at ANZ and NAB Banks, and Transformation Management Office and Change Director at AMP. I'm honored and privileged to introduce you to the Founder and Managing Director at Change Meridian, Certified Dare to Lead Facilitator, someone who is curious about bad bosses and is famous for getting you ready for tomorrow today. Michelle Gibbings. Michelle, welcome to the show.
0: Hi, Craig. Wow. What an introduction.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well deserved. You've had a, a very esteemed career and you're really looking forward to diving into that today. Where did you grow up and what made you curious when you were a child?
0: So I'm a Brisbane girl by birth. I was going to say Brisbane feels like a long way away at the moment because I haven't been back there since March because of border closures. Mm. Um, But yeah, Brizzy girl, I was the youngest of four. I grew up in a... an academic type family. My father was an academic. My mother was a teacher. So we were, you know, learning was just sort of part of the DNA of the household. I always remember growing up when you got birthday gifts or Christmas gifts, you'd get, you know, a gift, but you would always get a book. And so for me, the curiosity was just nurtured at a really young age that we were encouraged to learn, to ask questions, to think about things really deeply, you know, really interesting, you know, conversations around the dinner table. So it was fun. It was a good childhood.
2: So outside of your family, who had the greatest influence on you during your teenage years?
0: During my teenage years? That's really interesting. Uh, look, I... I... There were were teachers, absolutely, who nurtured me in terms of my love of word as well, in terms of like the written word. And I always remember this because at the end of grade 10, I topped science. And so I had always assumed that I would go on, you know, to do something that was scientific. And then I got into grade 11 and I got a chemistry teacher who I could not relate to to the extent that I almost failed chemistry. And I still remember because the principal rang my mother and said, what's going on? You know, your daughter topped year 10 and now she's almost failing. And Mum said, she can't relate to the teacher. If she asks a question, she feels like she's stupid. So she stopped asking questions. And it was interesting because at the same time I got an English teacher who really nurtured me and could see that I could write. And so it shifted and all of a sudden it became history, economics, English, that was what I was really good at. And I shied away from the chemistry because and science because I all of a sudden found myself not good at it and it's really interesting to think that moment shifted where my career started but what's really fascinating now is I look at some of the work that I do now where it's psychology and biology related because I have to understand how the human mind works I've gone back to science which is what I always really liked when I was younger
2: It's fascinating that um, pivotal moment there where in in our lives, right, where if we don't quite have that chemistry and that relationship with people, it can really turn us off something we're quite passionate about or naturally gifted at. Um, So really an interesting insight for that to occur, but obviously now it's come full circle back to what you loved as a teenager or what you were really good at then is now coming through into your work.
0: Well, and what's also interesting is at the time you don't realise it's pivotal. no because it just happens. And then you kind of look back and go, wow, look at the decision that I was making. And, you know, and I also look at that teacher and you know, she was 21. It was her first role out of, um, you know, teacher's college. She would never have known the impact that she was having. And who knows? Perhaps she was nervous. Perhaps when you asked questions, she felt intimidated. There could have been a whole raft of things that were going on for her. That as a, you know, a 15-year-old sitting in a 16-year-old sitting in a classroom, you just can't realise because it's all about you. It's all about your experience. You're not sitting there thinking, I wonder what's going on for her and what pressure she's feeling. So I think, you know, that's the one thing I've noticed as I've gone through my career, the more that you can step into the other person's shoes and seek to understand where they're coming from, the better outcome you'll have.
2: Mm, I like it. If you could bring something forward from your childhood to the way you live your life now, what would it be?
0: Something forward from my childhood. I loved dancing as a child and I did gymnastics and I still wish I did. (laughs) So sorry, I know that's totally out of context and it has nothing to do with work. But I look, I think as a, as a child, you're just more comfortable experimenting and playing, and you do get less sort of stressed about what the outcome is and what people's reactions are. You just do stuff because it thinks it's interesting and it's fun. And I certainly know when I made the shift from corporate into what I'm doing now, I had a good couple of years where I really struggled with my identity, because I had seen myself as this corporate chick, you know, I understood the corporate environment, I knew how to excel in that environment. And then all of a sudden, I'm running a business. And what does it mean to be a business owner? And what's my identity? What's my sense of self? And also really getting comfortable putting myself out there. And even though I knew I was good internally in organizations in selling myself in terms of the quality of the work that I was doing, to then feel like I was selling myself where well actually the company is me i'm the brand of the company and what goes with that felt really uncomfortable and i still remember when i wrote my first book And my publisher said to me, this is just after everything had gone to print. And she said, oh, you must be absolutely thrilled. You must be so excited. And I said, no, I feel like I'm going to throw up. And she said, oh, okay, haven't quite had that as a reaction before. And she said, why? And I said, I am waiting for the world to judge me. I'm Mm -hmm. waiting for the world to go, who does she think she is? She's talking corporate. What the hell does she know? How does she think that she's an author? And then by the time I got to my second book, it was like, I'd worked through that And I realized it actually didn't matter what people thought of me, as long as I was putting out work that I thought was quality, that was in line with my sort of sense of integrity and sense of self, and that I was helping people and doing it with genuine intent. If people didn't like me, it didn't matter. Um, And so that for me had been a big, a big learning.
2: Mm, Yeah, big shift. So what inspired you to study communication management and, and obviously a little bit later on some diplomacy as well? Oh
0: look, I'm a love of learner, and you left out my commerce degree, so I really am a total oh. nerd. So I've done lots <laughs> of study, um, and and it's always been based on the context and the environment that I, I was in. So you know, when I first left you know um, high school, communications was interesting. I was actually tossing up between communications and law, and I liked the course. It looked interesting, and then when I was in politics. I had time on my hands because, you know, you do sitting weeks where you work stupid hours, but then I'd have other times where, you know, you have sort of peaks and troughs. I thought, oh, I actually might go and look at doing some study. And so I started doing, um, actually started doing pure economics. And then when I shifted to roles, it actually made more sense to do commerce. And then the international trade and diplomacy, that was just pure interest. I wanted to do a master's and it was actually really good advice. One of my colleagues at the time said to me, don't, Go and do your master's in something that you feel is about, you know, amplifying your career. Because it doesn't matter. It doesn't actually matter what it's in. Go and study something that you think is fun. Now, studying international trade and diplomacy, some people might be sitting there thinking, this woman's got rocks (laughs) in her head. How does she think that that was fun? But really, it was very much about understanding international political institutions. So, International Court of Justice, World Bank, World Economic Forum, understanding, you know, sovereignty and rights between nations. And I am, you know, if I look at the stuff that I find personally really interesting, it's history, it's economics, it's how the world kind of connects and works together. Um, and look, at the end of that, I actually thought about, oh, you know, do I go work for DFAT? But I was also quite advanced in my career. And to go into DFAT, I would have to have taken a really big step backwards, and I couldn't quite stomach the step backwards that far. <laughs>
2: So for those uh, international listeners, DFAT is Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Um, so I'm sure you have similar type um, entities inside your, in your country as well. Really fascinating. And it was kind of my, you know, I was wondering beforehand, you know, how, how someone ends up in a role as a press secretary and public policy advisor at a federal government.
0: At a very young age as well. Yeah. I, I, it was interesting because I remember in third year uni, I had done work experience with a senator um, and I loved it. It was, you know, I was in Canberra. It was really exciting. And so, it, you, know, you know, through the last six months of my um, university, I was like, that's what I want to do. I want to go and work in politics. But the interesting thing was I'm a swing voter. Always have been, always will. And I made it really clear to people that I was going to interviews with, I'm not a card-carrying member of your party, um, but I can work for you if I believe in you as the politician. Um, And I applied for a role, so I was still living in Brisbane at the time, and I applied for a role in Melbourne and came down for the interview, didn't get the job because it was the most senior role (laughs) in that office. And the person said, look, we think you're fantastic, but you're really just too young but we know someone else who's looking for an electorate officer who manages their media work. And so they referred me in now. And look, I don't know whether this had a bit of a sway, but it turned out that she was also ex Brisbane and many, many years before me had gone to the same high school as me. Um, So maybe that helped get my foot in the door. I don't know, but, um, but she was great. She said, look, I like you, you've got ambition, you've got drive, you can clearly write. Um, And then when she took on a shadow portfolio, I took over the portfolio element um, of the shadow ministry that she was um, involved with. And, you know, so yes, it was hard work. There was a bit of, I guess, being in the right place at the right time. I had the person who I had done work experience for, thought that I was fantastic. And so he was a really strong advocate of mine. So it was one of those things, you know, get experience, you know, do work experience because the work experience that I was doing, you know, I don't, you wasn't getting paid for it. And I know there's lots of people go, oh, well, if you're doing work experience, you should get paid for it. I go. I don't know, when I was young, I just wanted the experience because I wanted it on my CV. And then I was able to say, here are all the things that, I, that I've that i done. Um, and I still remember when I kind of rocked up to to Canberra and I was meeting other people's press secretaries and they're all, you know, X the age, X financial review, X this, X that. And they'd say to me, oh, so what paper are you from? And I'd go, "Ah, <laughs> uh, I've just finished uni. And they all looked at me and went, how did you get this job? like, I went for an interview where they gave it to me. Um and look, it was really hard in terms of um really long hours and I remember during the election campaign basically just sleeping in the office um on on days. So you had to be prepared to put in the hours. Um and you know, it was interesting because I know when that finished um and the person I was working for lost her seat at um the election and I had people who rang me and said, "Do you want to come and work for other politicians because there's other people who would love to have you come in I was like I don't want to be a political staffer that had never been my sort of career plan um but I wanted the experience of working in politics so anyway I packed up my car and drove back to Brisbane after I lost my job because she lost her job um and then that then led to the next step which got me into corporate and the first corporate kind of industry was the mining sector
2: Mm. so before we dive into the corporate aspects of your career I'm wondering what, you know, because you talk about there around studying diplomacy, you know, what happens in between different countries and things like that. What was your biggest life lesson, sort of working in politics or studying diplomacy?
0: Look, I think my biggest life lesson, and look, this to me actually stems back from childhood, I was the youngest in a very, very bright set of siblings and i was not academically as gifted as them and the whole way through primary school not so much high school but um certain subjects in high school i'd be compared to my siblings oh, you know, we had your sister last year, oh, she's smart, oh, she was really clever, oh, and your brother, oh, they're both so smart, are you as smart as them? Now, and when the teachers were saying that, there was never, they weren't doing it with ill intent, but the impact on me was quite profound because I was not academically as gifted as them. Um, and so what it has driven in me, even probably to this day, is a relentless drive, relentless energy, because I knew I was not the smartest kid in the class. And so my view is I'm not the smartest kid, but I'm going to be, you know, I'll be the hardest working. And so where I've got to in life is, has always been because I've worked hard and I have this fundamental belief structure that I can learn it. I may not know it, but I can learn it because I'll be able to figure it out. And so my life lesson through all of that is don't listen to what other people say about you, because there will always be people out there who don't think you can make the grade, who don't think you're as good as other people. It actually doesn't matter. It's really about the effort that you put in and what you think about yourself. Um, And often I have people who look at me and go, I'm sure that's easy for you. You're confident. And I think, I'd to swear. Um, probably shouldn't swear <laughs> on your program. I think, no, I, I'm not. You know, I, I'm racked with doubt. I have days where I think, oh my God, how, I, how am I going to pull this together? But then I have a little thing in my head that just goes, Ooh! and once again, that's not a little swear word. And I just go, I have to do it. I might yep. feel nauseous as I'm doing this, but I have to do it because if I don't, it's going to hold me back and I don't want to be held back.
2: Mm, very, very good. So you progressed into your corporate career from from politics, and you started, you know, looking at your resume. You moved through to high high level senior executive roles relatively quick. And what drew you to focus more on transformational change?
0: Look, it's interesting because. I would say it was that and risk and compliance and and they all sort of thread together. And I've had a lot of people in my life say to me, so you had a really weird CV, like how do you make such big functional jumps? Because it is, when you look at it, you know, I went from public affairs, company spokesperson roles, working on change programs, head of compliance for a bank, working for a CEO. And then once again, into big sort of change programs. And what I would always say is underpinning all of that is a skill set. And it's the skill set that I learned in my first degree um, in terms of communications, that ability to build strong relationships with people, to talk to them, to understand them, to be able to ask the right types of questions. And so often I'd find myself in roles where I wasn't the technical expert, but I was there because of my ability to build relationships, build strong connections with teams, be able to manage a process, be able to get things done. And because I have this love of learning, even when I moved into the compliance role, I went off and got accredited. So my view is if I'm going to be working in this space, I need to go and get accredited. I need to be able to understand the language. And I often say to people, you know, there's a big difference, you know, there are certain technical roles, you know, a la heart surgery, brain surgery, we, you know, engineering, where you really you know, there is a difference. You really do need someone who is a technical expert, but there are other roles where part of the technical role is learning a language. And I actually found that in business, there is a language of business. And if you can learn the language of business, you can move across functional areas really easily because you'll have a skill set around understanding process, understanding um, people, understanding frameworks, and all of those tools go with you. You just shift and learn a different language when you move into a different functional area.
2: Mm. It's interesting when people, you know, look at my career, it's quite similar, right? I've bounced around different areas as well. But I think the undermining thing for me has always been around, you know, I started teaching, learn to swim and coaching from the age of 15. And so those skill sets are all about communication, building rapport, people, etc. So you can actually, as you say, you can transfer them across to so many different areas. And so that's the beauty if you can get into some sort of you know, really strong communication type role at a young age. I think that sets you up uh, for some greater successes in the long term.
0: Look, it does. And I always say to people, when you look at your skill set, understand your skills and look at them and go, what's transferable? What's replaceable? and what eventually becomes obsolete, because there are certain skills that as you move through your career, you leave behind. Mm. But then there are other skills that when you move into different areas, you absolutely just take the whole skill set with you. And then there will be others that you tweak and you change and you adapt in some way because you're using it in a different context. Um, you know, I look at the work that I do now and I do a lot of, you know, I do radio, I do TV. All of that is drawing on my skills as a company spokesperson, but it's a different context totally different environment. So it has a different level of stress associated with it as to when I was a a press secretary for a bank.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So so talking about banks, you work for two of the, of Australia's largest banks, NAB and ANZ. What was the biggest difference in the way that they were led and their response to change?
0: It's a really big reminder of culture because both organizations when i was there went through lots of cultural changes um and so to me the change happened when i was in those organizations so you could move across i, I did feel when i moved from amz to nab nab felt more traditional when i first got there um and that shifted and changed over the time that i w- i was there i mean both of them had um i think Particularly NAB, what I found that I really liked about my time at NAB, and I do consider myself, if I look across the breadth of my career, incredibly privileged in terms of some of the people that I was working with, um, is if they looked at you and went, "Look, you're 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 good, you're smart," they would put you into roles where they go, "We can develop you. You'll learn this." And so there was a lot of trust um and a real willingness to develop people and they saw leadership as a skill set and a skill set that could be developed um and to me that was so pivotal in terms of the success of my career but also something that i look at a lot of organizations where the organizations that really see leadership as a skill set that's so critical to their long-term sustainability and growth. And that doesn't mean that they don't have problems. Um, you know, I think all organizations will have hotspots in their in their organizations where things can go wrong, but it's that ability to face into it and actually deal with it. And I think sometimes some of that's been lost in recent years.
2: So a couple of, you know, things are popping up already around, you know, what makes good leaders, around making sure they develop out the leaders, etc. And then obviously you've worked with a number of bosses from when you were working in government through to, you know, now owning your own business. What has stood out for you as a key, as really strong key characteristics for you in a great boss?
0: probably the person who to me was the absolute standout was the person who recognized in me where I needed to improve. And so early in my working career with her, you know, she pulled me aside and she said to me, you know, I get your ambitious and I get you want to do a good job. That's great. But she said, when you move on, someone's going to come in and they're going to do the work differently. Maybe they'll even do it better. No one's going to remember the work you did. The only thing they'll remember is how you made them feel and what you've done to help them in terms of the progress in their career. She said, that's your role as the leader is to develop them. That totally shifted the lens in terms of how I started to see myself, because before I'd been very much about task. I was very good about the task, very good in creating the tools, the frameworks, the processes to make sure we're getting stuff done. But what I found was when I flipped and made more of the focus about the people, the work then just happened and she genuinely cared about the people that she worked with. Um, And, you know, I look at today, that would have been, oh, I'm probably, I'd have to be guessed, it's probably 20 years ago um, that we were working together and, you know, I still have contact with her. And, you know, actually, if I look back through my career, there are many bosses that I still have contact with and all of them offered something different. And even though sometimes those relationships could be frustrating, you were still learning. And that was the key thing for me. I always looked for a leader that I knew I could respect and that I could learn from because if I can't learn from the people that I'm working with, I really struggle in that environment.
2: Yeah, so you've got to have fun, right? So, and and you've got to enjoy what you do. It's the number one recruitment and retention tool in the world. If you like someone and they like you, then you're likely to get a job. Then once you're in there, if you like working with each other, you're more likely to stay there a lot longer as well. I think that's really important. Your, Your mission is to bring a little joy back into the workplace. So this flows in really, really well. What does this mean and why do you think it is currently missing in many workplaces?
0: What I see, and I, you know, I do a lot of one-on-one coaching work and obviously I also do a lot of group work in organizations and I'm still seeing in organizations, people not stepping into the conversations that they need to have and At the root of it is they're worried about the outcome. Well, I'm worried that if I do this, I'm going to hurt their feelings. So I'm worried that if I do this, there's going to be some blowback against me. And so part of my sort of bringing the joy is not to fall into this fallacy that we think we can be happy every single, every minute of the working day. Life doesn't work like that. But you really do want to be in a position where you know how to bounce back when things go wrong. You know how to bring out the best in everybody around you, but that also means you're bringing your best. And so really getting clear around who am I, what do I stand for, what environment do I need so I can be my best? And as a leader, how do I encourage other people around me to be able to do that as well? And therefore, what am I bringing to the table that actually enables them to do that? Because, and I see it time and time again in my my coaching, people don't come to me and go, oh, gee, Michelle, I'm finding my work hard. They come to me and go, my boss is a, you know, they'll swear or they'll go, I just can't work with him I or her. I can't relate to them or they're a bully. They, you know, don't give me clear instructions or there's a colleague and I don't trust my colleague. I feel like they're white me. So people, it's the relationships at work that people struggle with less so the actual work. So if you can work on the relationships, if you can find ways to make those relationships more constructive, more healthy, then you're going to create an environment where people thrive.
2: Mm. And and I love that you define your success through working with people through three lenses. So as an individual, as a leader, and then their wider influence within the organization. Why do you think it requires three lenses?
0: It requires three because I think sometimes what happens is, as an individual, an individual might go, but I, you know, I'm I'm pretty junior in the organisation, or I'm just a manager, or I'm just a leader. I can't influence beyond my realm, and yet we all influence others by what we do. And so everything you do as an individual, even if you're an individual contributor, so you're not managing a team, that has an impact on people around you. Emotions are contagious. And that emotional contagion then influences the culture within your team and also how you're interacting with other teams. And so it's really important to go, what can I influence? What can I control in this environment. And really the only thing you can control is your own behavior. What you can influence is you can influence other people's behavior by how you behave, by the conversations that you have, by how you interact with them. And so the more everyone goes, I'm gonna do my part, that makes it easier to then go, as a collective, we're actually bringing out the best in each other. And so that then means everybody plays their part and you are looking at it through three lenses, the individual, the team, and also that broader collective organisation. And that then means the top people in the organisation are really clear. What's the a culture we want in this organization and if we really want that culture we need to make sure we're leading by example and also we're going to make tough decisions when we don't see that culture playing out in the way that it should when leaders don't lead the way they should
2: Mm -hmm. and so which lens do you feel is probably the the most often missing from leaders
0: That's that's a hard question because what I do find, I always say to people, leadership is personal, leadership is contextual. And by that, I mean the type of leader you are when you move to a different organization, it can be different. You don't lose your values, you don't lose who you are, but what's required of you can be quite different. Um, I think what often there's a gap between what an organization states they want and what is actually happening on the ground. And that to me is the biggest danger. And often when I'm doing coaching work, I'll say to people as part of their their pre-work, they have to fill in a survey. And one of the questions is, does your organization have stated values? Everyone goes, tick, yes, stated values. Next question, is your senior leadership group living those values? At least 50% say no. That's... That's a tell. That says something. If you're looking up to your senior leaders and going, Yeah, this is what you're saying, but this is what you're doing. There's something that's missing. And my question then to senior leaders is: Are you conscious that there's a gap? And if you're not conscious that there's a gap, one, there's a there's a there's something that's not missing, there's missing in the process because you should know that there's a gap if you know there's a gap and you're not doing anything about it why aren't you doing something about it
2: mm-hmm. why aren't you doing something about it and and that's a that's a great question because quite often know, yeah, people will see things but they either don't be proactive in changing it and, and or they just go it's too hard and leave yeah. it.
0: and also i mean i often say this to um to people you know the other thing to remember as well it's pretty hard sometimes to be a leader there's a lot going on and so one of the things that's really important to do is to look at your leader with compassion and empathy and go okay why do I think they're behaving like that what's the pressure that they're experiencing what's happening in the organizational system that could be challenging them that could be prompting them to think and process and act in a certain way. Now that doesn't mean you excuse their behavior, but if you get some context, sometimes it can give you a little bit more um, understanding. And then perhaps, you know, what's the courage you then need to be able to go and have a conversation with them about what's working and what's not working. Because I know through my career, the times when I went and had those conversations, often the leader had no idea of the impact that they were having. They're so focused on what it is that they need to deliver when you sit down and talk through, this is what I'm seeing, and this is what I'm feeling, and this is the impact it's having. They're like, "Oh wow, I had no idea!" And then you can work through and go, "Okay, what do I need to bring differently, and what do they need to bring differently as well?"
2: Yeah. Before we dive into your most recent book, Bad uh, Bad Bosses, what what has what what drew you to uh, writing? books, you know, becoming an author because this is number four.
0: It is. Um, Look, I love writing. It's interesting. I have people who keep saying to me, oh, Michelle, you should do a podcast. I go, no, 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 no. I'm very happy to be interviewed on other people's podcasts like yours, but I have no desire to run my own podcast. I think it's about knowing what you're what you like. I've always enjoyed the written word. And it was a really good way of clarifying my thinking. And I think I found once I did one, once you kind of get over the hurdle, the thought of doing the first one is pretty hard. You go, oh, where do I even start? How do I do this? Once you've done one, you then realise what you can do. It also helps have a very good editor because when you find a good editor, they help you through the process in terms of um not getting your thoughts together but also just clarifying is that what you mean and I often have people who say to me how do you write a book and my one word discipline that's it that's it you decide you want to write a book you set a date and you go That's it um, and so for me I was you know I'm very disciplined when I write I write every week but in terms of when I'm writing a book I have a very set time frame that I work towards the diary is cleared, Um, my husband's on notice because it does mean I pretty much write seven days a week um, and I get up early. My best work is done early in the morning and so I do a hideous schedule, which is usually I'm getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning and I'm writing for four to five hours first thing in the morning. And so that works for me. Now, that won't work for other people, but if you know what your routine is, you set the routine and you're disciplined and you follow that routine, you can do it. Mm.
2: So Get Career Fit Sparks My Curiosity. You know, what? what is this book all about and how can people become career fit?
0: So career fit is a subset of Career Leap. So the the publishers republished it under a different name. We made a few changes and all that kind of stuff. That was because they packaged it as part of this Wiley um. I should know the name of the series, Um, but they packaged it as part of a series and they had to change the title to be able to do that. Um, But it's very much about people owning their career. So I always say to people, you can't future-proof your job but you can future-proof your career. And part of that is really getting deliberate and understanding where am I now? Where do I want to get to? How is my industry, my profession changing? Because we know things are changing. They will always change, but they've always changed. That's not new. And so rather than sitting back and going, it's the responsibility of my organization or it's a responsibility of somebody else to help me manage my career. This is very much a book that steps you through all of the things that you can do to reshape your career to move from one professional one industry or one functional discipline to another and so it helps you do that it really helps you understand this is what i need in my career as it fits in my life because i always say you can't divorce your career from your personal life the two go hand in hand and so you need to understand what do i want with my life because the career needs to be a subset and yes one might drive the other but I think if you've got a career and you don't understand how that's playing out in the other aspects of your life you can end up actually having quite a hollow life
2: yeah the last thing I want is a hollow life I want some meaning and purpose to it yep most people have experienced at least one bad boss in their life what for you was the catalyst to writing bad boss
0: I I had a great conversation with my brother-in-law. So he actually wanted to call the book Bastard Bosses. Um, (laughs) The publishers wouldn't stomach that. They thought it looked a little bit too negative. Um, And and it's it's interesting because that's what the book is not a negative book. And I've had a couple of people have said to me, oh, why would I want to read this? I said, "It's, it's really a book of hope and inspiration because it's very much about everybody owning their part. And it stems back to the conversation that we were having earlier where I see so often people at work struggling, struggling with their relationship with their boss or the boss struggling with their direct reports and not knowing how to fix that dynamic. And they'll go and buy a leadership book, which is great because you can learn a lot. But what this book really helps people understand is seeing it through three perspectives, seeing it through the perspective of the employee, of the leader and of the leader's boss, because all three play a part. And so when you read the book, it's not just, oh, well, I'm an employee, I'll just read this section. You're really encouraged to read all three sections because what it helps you do is understanding what's the decision-making process that that other person might be going through? What's the context? What are the challenges they might be facing? And it helps you understand. I think when you have deeper understanding, you're better able to then work out what's the best strategy, what are the things that I can do so I can change what the impact it is in terms of if it's negative, what's the negative impact that's having. I can shift or alter that in some way.
2: Mm. And so shifting perspectives is a big challenge as a leader, you know, how can leaders prepare themselves for a shift? And and obviously many people have experienced a shift this year that, um, they didn't really get a chance to prepare for. Well, hopefully they had prepared to get ready for any shift, but it was uh, quite sudden.
0: Look, I mean, I think what we're going through this year has been, I don't think you can really put words on it. Um, and, I was saying to one of my clients the other day, I feel like I'm my own human Petri dish at the moment because, you know, I'm in lockdown Melbourne. I'm an extrovert. I used to travel every week. I don't feel like I've left my studies since March and I've been watching the impact that this has had on me emotionally. And, you know, I understand myself really well. So I'm able to sort of almost step out of it and go, wow this is really interesting because that's not me. So I can actually see myself not feeling like myself, not being myself. I can see the impact this is having on how I'm processing information. Um, And so I think that's the thing as a leader. I spent a lot of time um, through my corporate days and even now understanding myself. And this is not, you know, I was very blessed in terms of the development programs I had when I was in corporate, but also I spent time outside because I was genuinely interested in understanding how I tick. That doesn't mean I've got it nailed. I still, you know, my husband will very happily hold the mirror up on occasions and go, oh, Michelle, not quite sure whether that's how it's really playing out. And so it's really important to, one, understand yourself, but surround yourself with people who will challenge you because we all – you know we think our brain is this infallible machine it's not our brain constructs a version of reality based on what it's experienced in the past and so if you're relying on these past expectations and assumptions to make decisions that are guiding your future you can actually end up in a future that you don't want and so when you've got people around you who challenge you who help you see things differently you will make better decisions you'll be a better leader and You know, I was fortunate because I had people like that through my corporate career and I had a corporate, you know, a coach that I worked with for many years. Um, Probably the last 15 years of my corporate career, I had a coach and she really helped me process information. And then my husband, Craig, he had you know he grew up in india he's got a very different world view to me and i can be very black and white i can be very quick to judge and craig's really good at helping me dissect that and helping me see different people's perspectives and so who have you got around you as a leader that's helping you do that but also is your cheer squad so i would say you know craig's my biggest challenge but he's also my biggest cheer squad
2: Mm. and and i suppose you know that though having those people around you is really really important and for leaders We've got for many leaders, they're dealing with an environment that's totally different to what they're used to um, We're going to re- remote working environments. How can leaders prevent toxic- toxicity occurring in the workplace when they don't have so much face to face interaction um, in a group type sitting in, in more of that, that workplace environment? And now they have to be a bit more strategic around it
0: the key thing is psychological safety and we hear a lot about this because of the work that was done in google but it all comes from amy edmondson's work who's a harvard professor um, but really understanding what's the environment that i'm creating where people feel safe to speak up safe to actually go this is working or this isn't working and i know for me one of the things that i was really explicit about in my corporate days is i know i can run fast I've got incredible energy. I can move at a pace and I can be very decisive. And so I used to get explicit with my team. I want you to challenge me. I'm getting, yeah, you know, I'd have people go, oh, Michelle, you know, that can be a little hard. And I go, oh no, I'm, I'm really honest. I really, really want you to challenge me. I won't see things. I can be 10 steps ahead and I won't see that I've left you behind. I'm gonna need you to slow me down because my natural pace is fast. And so for me, it was about being open with my team about what my weaknesses were and saying, this is where I need you to help me. And if we do that, we're going to end up with a better outcome. And so we did. We we would have an environment where people were safe to speak up. People were safe to come and talk to me about things that were working and things that weren't working. And so the Biggest danger in a toxic environment is it goes underground because people don't feel safe to tell you about what's going on and also about what behavior they're seeing in other people around them. And, you know, it becomes hard because people go, well, you know, you don't want to be a, you know, the so-called like tattletale. But if there is behaviour in the team that is toxic, if there is behaviour in the team that does not live up to your values and the values of the what your team wants to stand for, then you as a leader have to find out about it and you have to do something about it. Um, I also think one of the most instructive things that you can ever get done as a leader is 360-degree feedbacks. You know, it's done anonymously. You get feedback from your boss, your boss's boss, your direct reports, your colleagues. You look at it and you... The data doesn't lie. You, could, you can go, oh, well, I asked people who gave me really direct feedback. Yeah, but that's what you want. Don't just go to people who are going to be friends of yours. Go to people who are going to give you constructive feedback because once you've got the data, you're then able to go, okay, this is how I think I lead and this is how people experience me. There's a gap. Now I can make a conscious decision about what I need to do to close that gap.
2: mm. It's all about closing gaps and uh, we, quite, we, we quite often build a bridge before even figuring out what the gap is. So uh, really powerful. We all, we all know that smart people have great answers, but the most successful people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time?
0: Oh, ah, uh go back to uni this year and start my PhD and then find that my head was going to explode. Uh, (laughs) Look, I, I mean, I am one of those people who I like doing things that are new. And I always say to people, you know, if you're not, if you're sitting here and you're feeling totally comfortable all the time you've stopped learning and that's not good because when you've stopped learning, you're one step closer to obsolescence. Mm-hmm. So during lockdown, I learned how to bake um, bread. I, I could always bake, but I've never been able to do um, make good bread, but I'm now a master at baking bread. And I had this goal. I used to say, Oh, you know, really bad flexibility. And even though I exercise and exercise a lot, I had convinced myself that I couldn't touch my toes. I can now touch my toes. And I realized it was just every day, every day I would tend to spend five to 10 minutes of stretching and I can now touch my toes. And so it's one of those things where I go, wow, it's just a reminder. You're never too old to learn something new and you're never too old to shift something within you that isn't working.
2: Love, love it. Love it. PhD, that's um, good going and, and you've already done quite a few degrees and we we're speaking about this beforehand. So my, I tip my hat off to you doing a PhD. Um, it's a lot of dedication required to, to make that happen. What is the one question that you would love to solve?
0: The one question I would love to solve? Ah, oh, look... It'd be so hard to say one. I think the thing that I really struggle with at the moment is the unwillingness of people to listen to people they disagree with. I feel like in the world, we've become so polarized, it's really dangerous we've stopped listening to ideas that we don't agree with. And if we don't agree with them, they're a moron, they're an idiot, they're a, you know, you know let's use all the expletives in the world, as opposed to going, well, why do they think like that? Where's that coming from? What have we created in society that is unequal, that makes people feel like that that's their only choice? Um, because I, I fundamentally believe, you know, yes, I believe in, you know, you know, not, um, I think it's great to be ambitious. I think it's great to do well and to strive and to succeed. And I'm a very driven person, but I don't wanna live in a society that is full of haves and have nots because that's just not healthy. It's not healthy for from a democracy point of view. It's not healthy from a social wellbeing point of view. I want a society where we pick everybody up and we carry everybody forward Um, and I feel like we're just losing some of that. And I, yeah, and I don't know what the answer to that is, but you see it through this, it's like hatred and it's so unhealthy.
2: Yeah. I I remember going into conferences where I've seen people sitting at the table and because they don't like something someone said, they want to walk up and I go the opposite way. I always lean in. I go, oh, I'm curious now. Why do they think that way? What, what do they get that I don't? And it's okay if I don't agree with them. But I I just, I'm like, it just sparks a a light inside of me to go, hmm, there's a different perspective here. Am I missing something? Well,
0: and the other thing as well is why is it sparking a reaction in you? Mm. Because that's the other bit, the internal reflection, which is why is this making me angry or why is it making me annoyed or why is it making me frustrated? Um, And then being able to reflect on that, because what are you missing in the puzzle as well? And what are you learning from them? Um, And that doesn't mean, as you're saying, that you have to agree with them. But I think if we can't do well-reasoned debate as humans, we're lost.
2: Mm. Certainly are. For you, what is your definition of living an extraordinary life?
0: People often say, you know, what's your one word? And my one word is freedom. I need to be free, free to be me. And that doesn't mean be free to be a mean or nasty to other people, but me to be able to live the life that I need to live that is me bringing my best. Um and That's about adventure. It's about learning. It's about experimentation. Um, And, you know, that's why I often look at the person that I married. And I often say this to women, one of the biggest decisions you can ever make in your career is who you marry, because they will either hinder you or they will help propel you to greater things. And the thing that I love about Craig is he never stops me. When I left corporate, I still remember this. I went on a meditation retreat and I came home and I said to Craig, I'm done. He goes, done with what? I said, done with corporate. He goes, excellent. Excellent what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to run a business. And he goes, brilliant in what? I said, I've got no idea.
2: (laughs) Um, And
0: he didn't go, you're an idiot. What are you doing? You're walking away from bucket loads of money. He was like, that's fantastic. Go for it. And so the fact that he was able to sit back and just go, Michelle will figure this out rather than going, here's all the reasons why you shouldn't do it. Let's you know stress out about it. What are all the risks? He knew that I would work that through. And so for me, that's embodies freedom because he lets me do what I need to do. He brings out the best in me. I bring out the best in him and we have fun. Um, and I am looking forward to travel again. So once we can actually do um, overseas travel, I was going to say actually just getting out to a different suburb at the moment in Melbourne would be interesting too.
2: <laughs> Michelle, you have delivered some great um lessons for people to learn from. You have shared some great insights, and probably one of the most profound one was the last one around um, who you marry can have a, a major impact on your career and who you are as a person in your life. How can people learn more about what you do and what is the best way for people to connect with you?
0: So look, I'm on all the social platforms, so you can find me through Michelle Gibbings or go to my website, which is MichelleGibbings.com, and you'll find access um, to all my books um can sign up to my newsletter and if you you know you need to chat, drop me a line. Always happy to have a chat about the work that I do.
2: Brilliant. We'll put those links in the show notes. Everyone can find them nice and easily. Michelle, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. I I love hearing about your childhood where you talked about that pivotal shift because of the influence or or maybe lack of influence the person had on you um, while you were at school and how that how then that allowed you to project into a new space of your career. And then it actually looped back around where you're now bringing back in what you really were talented at and passionate at as a youngster to have the, uh, both the desire and the dedication to really drive your career forward and not just stay in one lane, but be able to shift what your, your strengths are and bring that through into different lanes. But in the end, you're still hitting in the same direction and I think that's a key thing for people because they get caught up in like I'm an accountant so I've got to stay in accountancy the whole time or I am um, my, my focus is in being an engineer so I, I think like for me I love that aspect and it's probably um, I find it good because that's what I've done with my life as well and um, I think You've got a great perspective here. You're not hiding away from the fact that it's a challenging time right now, but you're also using the opportunity to focus on my freedom is I can still do things, but I have to focus on different freedoms than what I would in the rest of, um, you know, in a normal, normal stage of life. So Michelle, thank you so much. And for everyone out there, make sure you get bad boss, check it out and some of our other books be a great read. So Michelle, thank you very much for your time today.
0: Craig, thank you so much for having me on. It's been lots of fun.
2: Thank you for listening to an engaging conversation with Michelle Gibbings. I've got a bad boss on the active CEO podcast. It's important to have clarity around your brand promise as a company or human promise as a person. You know, what problem do you solve? Who do you solve it for? What is your unique value proposition? And what are the results that they will receive through your connection? Here is the Speakers Institute Corporate's brand promise as an example. We provide communication, leadership, well-being and organizational design solutions to solve ineffective communication and decision-making in companies. Our primary focus is on current and emerging leaders from multinational public and private companies and governments with more than 10,000 employees. Delivered globally, the Speakers Institute corporate difference is our broad range of specialties and expertise, agile innovation, high level of individual feedback, and a heart-centered, human-centric approach. It's our responsibility to partner with our clients, to co-create content, programs, and solutions that improve the human experience. I'd love to hear your brand or human promise. If this is something you haven't defined and, and need some support on, then you can also contact me at craig at NRG, the number 2 performcom or click on the contact page of craigjohns.com.au website. And together, can help you provide clarity for your clients or team. Now, coming up in the next episode of the Active CEO podcast is Minta Dial, and we talk about your biggest asset in leadership is you. you know, how can you expect people to trust and believe in you if you aren't truthful and don't embrace your whole self at work? We will dive into his newly released book, You Lead. Thank you so much for listening today. I'm Craig Johns. This is the active CEO podcast with ordinary don't belong.
1: Join the active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com That's nrg2perform.com Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.